Good morning. Good morning, family. I hope you guys are having a good Sunday morning. And just always consider it could be worse. You could be out running a marathon and rain in the cold, like my brother is doing right now. And so I laughed at him last night. Especially when I saw that there was chances of freezing rain. I said, that makes it even better. Um, but that's what he's doing. So it could be worse. But we're glad to have you guys here. Let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, how you love us. Thank you for your word that we can know you and we can, we can uh, see who you are through it and what you've done for us. Thank you for this church that we can come together as your body, as your people, love each other well, and set our eyes and minds and souls on you. Lord, we pray for this time as we open up your word that you speak to us, that you teach us what we need to be taught, that you show us what we need to see, and you guide us in how we should live for you in response to what you've done for us. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, and we're going to start with the scripture in John chapter 1, starting in verse 19, this is what it says. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. We love to announce things, don't we? We announce what's important to us. We announce what we think is going to change someone else's life. We announce things that have changed our lives. We announce so many things in our life. And social media has made it so much easier for us to announce our breakfast and announce our lunch and announce everything that's happening. And so we see, and actually I think we see now with this, this uh, culture of announcing that we like to up our announcement game. And so we see pregnancy announcements that, you know, go over the top. And so we have videos of people announcing, um, you know, that 
dad's going to have a baby now, and this gives us all the feels, or grandparents, and, and you know, we cry along with these videos. We have gender reveals where people use balloons, cake, confetti, and so much more in pink or blue to announce that they're going to have a boy or a girl. And all that's good because we announce what is important to us. And we live in a culture of announcements so we're used to people making announcements. We have trailers for movies to announce that movies going to come. But now we got teaser trailers that announce that there's going to be a fuller trailer to announce that movies going to come. We have businesses that make big announcements that they're going to make a big announcement about a new line of product or a new service they're going to author. Even churches get in on the game, and we like to make announcements of, we're going to make an announcement about a special service or a special thing we're going to be doing. We are announcing people, and that's because we're made in the image of announcing God. God is an announcing God. We see this pattern throughout the whole Bible. He announces what he's going to do, he does it, and then he announces what he did. And we see this again and again. And so it should make no, it should not uh, confuse us all when it comes to Messiah, the promise one sent by God that he starts announcing this Messiah is coming. He actually started way back right when Adam and Eve rebelled. In Genesis 3.15, he announced to them a promise that the, from the seed of the woman would come someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He announced through the prophets that this Messiah is coming and for us to wait and be expectant for him to come. And then he announced with the angels to the shepherds in that field outside of Bethlehem that he has come. And then he announced through a prophet that his ministry was starting. And that prophet that he used to announce the coming of the Messiah, that his ministry was at hand, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is what we just read about, this, this prophet, this last prophet of the Old Testament, this guy who received information from God that the Messiah was coming, and so he started to prepare the way. And so he baptized people in this water baptism as a symbol of repentance of sin. And when we read the Gospel of Luke, we see a lot more about who John the Baptist was. We see that he is the son of Zechariah, a priest, and of Elizabeth, who's related to Mary in some form or fashion. And so we see that John the Baptist actually was, um, from, had, was indwelt by the Holy Spirit from the womb. And that he was given a task and that he was to pronounce the coming of this Messiah. And we see that John the Baptist was kind of an odd guy. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore a camel hair shirt. He ate locusts and honey. Kind of an odd guy. But he was given a mission from God, and that was to preach the kingdom of God was at hand. Repent. And he pointed to Christ. And so we see in this passage that we just read, in verse 19, people are coming to John the Baptist and they're wondering, who are you? And that makes sense. They're sent from the Pharisees. They're sent from the leaders of the, of the Jewish religion to come and check out this guy who is out in the wilderness, who dresses kind of crazy, who is baptizing people in this river, and they want to know, who are you? And so they approach John the Baptist and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And he says, no. Very simple. I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. Say, okay, well, maybe, maybe you are Elijah. 
Which is kind of strange, because if you guys know who Elijah was, he's a prophet from the Old Testament who's been gone for hundreds of years. And so they're like, but you kind of look like Elijah. You're dressing funny, you're preaching a message of repentance, you're kind of condemning our leaders and all this stuff. Like, you look like Elijah. Are you Elijah come again? And he's like, no, I'm not Elijah come again. And so they say, well, are you the prophet? They didn't say, are you a prophet? They said, are you the prophet? Because they knew he was a prophet. They, the people recognized this guy came from God. But they asked, are you the prophet? Which points back to Deuteronomy when Moses promised that from among the people, he would rise up a prophet like Moses himself. But them asking this question, are you the prophet, shows that they actually have missed the boat of who the prophet is. For the prophet is the same as the Messiah. And so they've already heard from John that he's not the Messiah. So they want to be redundant and say, are you the prophet? And he says, no, I am not. So after you know, exhausting their list of who he might be, they just ask him, which might have been helpful in the first place. They just ask him, well, who are you? And John says, who am I? I'm the voice. I'm the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord. He's saying, who am I? I point to the one who's coming. I point to the true Messiah who's going to save us. I point to Jesus. I love this because we see such great humility in this. In our day and age, when it's all about making a name for yourself, building up a platform, gathering some followers, how many Twitter followers do you have or how many people have liked a post, John kind of defies all of that, and he knows he has a purpose, and that purpose is to point to Christ. There's humility there. Because he knows his ministry is one that is a placeholder. That I'm here, I'm proclaiming the Messiah, but once that Messiah comes, I step back and he takes place. He knows that he only has one job, and that's to point to Christ. And so when Christ comes, his ministry is over. He's going to fade away. In fact, he even points to Christ later on and, and talks about him and says, he must increase and I must decrease. Because that's my whole purpose, is to point to Christ. There's so much great humility here that he comes and he knows his purpose and he's not confused by it all. He comes and he's going to preach repentance. He comes and he's going to baptize. And that really is only a symbol that points to the fulfillment of what baptism is supposed to be. When Jesus comes and he brings the Holy Spirit that baptizes us and cleanses us of our sin purely and fully and connects us to his sacrifice. And so he comes and brings something that's just only a placeholder and points to Christ. I'm just boggled by his humility because when you know who John the Baptist is, he had no reason to be humble. That when they came to him and said, who are you? He could be, have replied, who am I? I'm the last of the Old Testament prophets. I have received a word from God. An angel, Gabriel, announced to my father that I was going to be born and had gave him my name. Who am I? Jesus Christ himself will testify that I am the greatest man in all the world. Who am I? Who are you? Well, that's not how he approaches it. I might have approached it that if I was John the Baptist. But he does not approach it that way. What does he say? 
I'm just a voice. I'm crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord. Quoting from Isaiah, pulling from Israel's past and saying, he is saying, prepare yourself for God's salvation. Make ready for the kingdom of God is at hand. Make yourself ready to receive the Messiah. And so we see his purpose, that he was to point to Christ, and that's what he did. We also see John's message very clear in this passage. As he looks and he saw Jesus coming to him, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that sense, we have John's message. In that sense, we have what he preached to all these people when they were going to baptize. And when you break down what is contained in this message, you see he preached the gospel. He preached a message that there was a separation that happened. This, this Lamb of God was going to take away the sin of the world, that because of sin, humanity was fallen. Because of sin, we were separated from our God. Because of sin, we now lived in isolation. Because of sin, we now face death. Because of sin, we cannot be in a relationship with our Creator. Because of sin, we're dying and corrupted, and everything we do is tainted by it. There's a separation there. And so he points to that and says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is coming to address that need. It's actually the biggest need, the greatest need we have in our lives. We're separated from God. And we can't overcome it ourselves. And we need him to address that situation, our need. It points to the fact that Jesus didn't just come down into flesh to come to be a tourist and see what it's like. He had a mission. And that was to address this need of separation. But how did the Son of God, the Lamb of God, how did he address this uh, need we have of separation? Well, separation can only be dealt with by sacrifice. That John's message is one of sacrifice, the Lamb of God, because that phrase, the Lamb of God, would immediately stir up his, his, his uh, listeners' minds, pointing back to the sacrificial system of the, of the Jewish people that they would provide a sacrifice uh, to appease God or to um, um, satisfy the wrath of God and to, uh, because of their sin. And more importantly, when he used the Lamb of God, it probably pointed back to, in their minds to the Passover, the Passover lamb. You guys remember what the Passover lamb is? It's when, when God was moving the Israelites out of Egypt Pharaoh was not listening, and so he sent one, God sent one last plague. The angel of death was going to come upon um, the whole area and kill the firstborn in every house. And God, through Moses, told him, how do you avoid this? Well, you take the a lamb and you sacrifice it. And you paint the doorposts with its blood. And when you do that, the, the angel of death will actually pass over your house. It's the name Passover. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's basically telling the people, how do you get God's judgment to pass over you? You provide a sacrifice. And so John was pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the Lamb of God. This is the true Passover. This is the true sacrifice. That if you want God's judgment to pass over you, look to him. He says, this is the Lamb of God. But also it pointed to the whole sacrificial system in its entirety. Because John... Remember, he was a son of a priest. 
He intimately knew how the sacrifices worked. His, bless you. His dad would go to the temple, and the Jewish people, morning and evening, would sacrifice a lamb for the sins of the people. So you can imagine John growing up, his dad would return home with blood-splattered garments as a priest. It's very intimate to John's mind that this is a true lamb. This lamb of God, Jesus, is the one that's going to provide the one perfect sacrifice that doesn't have to be repeated, doesn't have to become again. It's sufficient for all in this person. And so he pointed to Jesus, that because of sin we're separated by God, but because of Jesus' sacrifice we can be brought back to God and saved from our sin. So we see this message of separation that requires a sacrifice that demands a substitution. Because that's what sacrifice is, a substitution. I thought of a joke, I'm not going to say it because it's kind of, no, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say it. So, it's a substitution. You sub in, right? And so for a sacrifice, it's really a sinner taking a lamb saying, tag, you're it. That's my sin. And now you die in my place. Kind of morbid, but that's what they did. That's what they, that's what they really viewed the, the severity of sin, that we're standing under the wrath of God, and we, that the only thing that can satisfy this is blood, death, because that's the penalty. And so that was the sacrifice. And so when a sinner brought a substitute, a sacrifice before God, they were in some way saying, this is like me, and that's what I deserve. It's a substitute. But in a, and the way only God can do, instead of the sinner bringing the substitute, God himself brought our substitute, his son, himself, for us. That in his taking our place, we are saved. For that's the gospel message right there in a nutshell, if you really want to get down to it, that in our place condemned Jesus stood. The Lamb of God, spotless, without blame, the one who righteously fulfilled all the law of God, the one who was perfect in God's sight, he came and represented us perfectly, and then he stood in our place on the cross and took all of our sin upon himself, substituting in for us. And when you believe in Jesus, something truly real happened there as he subbed in for us. So he receives our sin and we receive his righteousness. Separation demands a sacrifice by substitution and that provides satisfaction. This Lamb of God satisfies. This Lamb of God brings satisfaction to God's judgment. He takes care of it. There is no more left. Because when it comes to sin, we have a problem with sin. We can't overcome it. We can't fix it on our own. We can't be good enough that somehow we earn up enough in our bank to take care of it. No, with sin, we have a problem. We cannot deal with it on our own. We're separated always from God. And so that is our problem we have to deal with, which we can't do. And that's why Jesus comes to save us. But God has a different problem. God has a problem of forgiveness. Sounds weird for us because we're used to God being a forgiving God. But there's a problem there. How does a righteous, perfect, holy God forgive sinners? He can't sweep sin under the rug. 
He can't just declare it's gone because he would not be good anymore. He would not be perfect anymore. He would not be holy anymore. Sin has to be dealt with. And it's dealt with and satisfied through Jesus Christ. For when Jesus takes our place as our sacrifice, subbing in for us, the demands of the law are satisfied. The demands of judgment are satisfied. The penalty for sin has been paid. It's taken care of. And so now when God looks upon us, there's nothing but love as he's moving in our lives because all of our sin has been paid through Christ. Separation demands a sacrifice by substitution which provides satisfaction. That is John's message. That John proclaimed the coming Savior, but we proclaim the risen Savior. And so why that alliteration is really cool because I really liked it. If you notice all those S's. The fact of the matter, when we read this passage, what should come, like plant in our minds? That John had a mission and it was to proclaim the coming Savior. And we have the same mission, let's proclaim the risen Savior. And that we actually have the fuller, completer message than John did. For John was proclaiming that there was going to be this coming Savior, and he saw Jesus and knew he was a coming Savior, and he pointed to Jesus, and he said, this is who I proclaim. And he's coming, he's going to take away the sin of the world. And that was his message. But he didn't get to see it happen. John was dead before Jesus fulfilled his ministry here on earth. But John did not see it happen, so he proclaimed the coming Savior. But we? We know who Jesus is and have seen through his word how he fulfilled everything. And we have seen how he gave himself for us. And not only that, but we have seen how the early church banded together and helped spread this message through the, the corners of the earth. And so we have seen a fuller message, more complete message. And so we can say, John proclaimed the coming Savior, but we proclaim the risen Savior. And we see, again, going back to this passage, that John had a purpose to point to Christ. And we have that same purpose, to point to Christ. That we should be pointing to Christ in all that we do. That how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis, we point to Christ. How we interact with people, we point to Christ. How we go about our business, how we go about our family life, we should be pointing to Christ like John did. Saying day by day, he must increase, and I must decrease. That we point to Christ just like John did, because we know who Christ is. I love the motto that you might have heard before. That came from actually a guy who was really involved in sending out missionaries, and he said, "Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten." That was his motto. That's what he lived by. Which is ironic, since he's now known about a quote about being forgotten. I find that funny. But the heart of that, I love it, because that is, that, is, that is like John's heart. That is what our heart should be, too. That we preach the gospel, we die, we be forgotten. We point to Christ, and we say, look at him. And when people look at us, we say, no, look at him. And when people want to know about us, we know, look at him. We point to Christ in all that we do. When people ask, why are we doing what we do? We point to Christ. When people want to know what we believe, we point to Christ. 
We point to Christ day after day, and we, we have that heart, and we should be encouraged by that. And the ironic thing is that when we have a life that's on fire for Christ, when we're pointing to Christ in all that we do, that life is not easily forgotten. That's why there, there's so many books about pastors and missionaries and reformers of the church who are on fire for Christ and only pointed to Christ, and yet they're remembered because when we see that life, we're encouraged and we want something like that. Because we see a purpose, a meaning that transcends any of these means that we try to come in our lives. We see a purpose that we point to Christ and that gives meaning for everything we do. And we should have that same purpose today. Point to Christ. Like John the Baptist did. Point to Christ. Like the prophets from the Old Testament did. Point to Christ. Like all the apostles did. Point to Christ. Like all the forefathers we have throughout church history, you point to Christ. We too today should be pointing to Christ. So, how do we do that? How do we point to Christ? Well, I think it looks a little different for every single person because we're in different situations, different job environments, different families. But there's some common that we all have is that we point to Christ. How One of the easiest ways is we invite them to church because then you have a whole gang of people helping point to Christ with you. We, we engage in conversation with the intentionality that, hey, I hope I can point to Christ in this. We seek to know people and love people for knowing them, but also because we want to be able to share who Jesus is and point to him. Think through your own life and how you can point to Christ and all that you do. John the Baptist even used his own experience when he pointed to Christ. We see in that passage, he says, hey, I know this guy. I baptized him just like God told me to baptize him, and I saw the Spirit descend, and it stayed on him, so I know he's the Messiah. He has his own testimony for who Christ is, and guess what? We all have our own encounter with who Christ is and how he has changed us if you believe in him. If you have followed Christ, if you know who Christ is, we all have our own experience. And when that experience, when that, when that encounter with God is grounded and saturated in the truth of the word of God, it carries a weight because we bring that before someone and say, I know this is true because this is, the Bible claims it, but I also know it's true because I have seen it work in my life in real ways as the Spirit has been transforming me through the word of God. So you should know how God has impacted you and be able to share it as a way to point to Christ. But we also have the same message as John. The message has not changed. As we saw, John's message was one of sacrifice, substitution, and satisfaction, and we carry that fulfilled message to people proclaiming the Savior who has risen from the grave, who gives us hope in all of our circumstances, who has saves us from all our affliction, who one day we hope is going to come again because we know it's true, and he's going to usher in his kingdom as we live for him forever, for God as we were made to be from the beginning. We have that same message as we proclaim to people. We hold it out to people that Jesus came and he accomplished salvation for us. That Jesus came and saved us. And that Jesus came so that we could know God. And we have that message and so we are supposed to share that message with people all around us. We're supposed to proclaim it, that message. 
How do we do that? I suggest not in a weird Bible-thumping way. I don't think that is how we're supposed to do it. But we should proclaim it in a way because if this message truly has changed us, if this message has truly brought us from darkness to light, if this message has truly made, made dead people alive, shouldn't it be saturated in every single part of your life? Shouldn't it be hard not to share the message? When you see someone who is destined to for eternal separation from God walking through life, shouldn't it be hard not to say something? Shouldn't it be hard not to proclaim this truth? Not in an arrogant way, not in a way that says, hey, I found it and you haven't yet. No, in a way that says, this is the truth, that I'm a sinner just like you, but by the grace of God, you can be a son or daughter of the Almighty God. And it's not my doing, it's Christ's doing. It's not how good I am, it's how good he is. It's not how well I can follow the law, it's that he perfected the law, completed the law, and he offers that to me. And he pulls me along day by day. When I am weak, he is strong. When I stumble, he is steadfast. That's the message we hold out to people. It's the message John the Baptist proclaimed to people when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we have experienced it, if we know that is true, we should hold that out to people again and again through the relationships we have, through the conversations we have, through the interactions we have. John proclaimed the coming Savior. We proclaim the risen Savior. And make no mistake about it, it is a contagious message. It's a message that changed the world. Empires have literally risen and fallen because of this message. It's a message that has changed lives. People have been brought from death to life because of this message. And if we know this message, we know it's contagious. Why is it contagious? Because it infects us. It gets into our bloodstream. It gets into every system in our body. Every thought starts to be contaminated by this message. But the glorious thing is that's not a bad thing. For through this message, we're being transformed more and more like Christ. That through this message and the Holy Spirit working through the word that we have dwelling richly in us, we, bit by bit, start to follow God in new ways, start to see God in new ways, start to praise God in the ways we're supposed to, and start to follow in all of our life. That bit by bit, this contagious message gets throughout all of who we are, and we cannot help when we bump up into someone to infect them too the way it's supposed to be. We bump up to them. They see something different. We bump up to them. We proclaim the gospel to them in short and easy ways and personal ways. We invite them into relationship because we care for people and we want them to know the message. So the question we have today is, do you know this message? Do you know the message of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? Do you know that message and have you, uh, have you 
put this message in our, in, our, in our hearts and our minds in a way that it does change everything about us? Have we experienced the truth of this message and seeing how God works in it? If you have, you can't hide it. You shouldn't hide it. You can't dismiss it. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be shared. It has to be preached. So it moves us. It pushes us forward. If we experience the truth that John proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is what we have to do as we continually proclaim that truth. When people are around us, we have to somehow say, behold, look, the Messiah, the anointed one from God, the chosen one of God, who was predicted and prophesied about from the very beginning. God has been moving us toward salvation and redemption from the very start. Look, that one, the promised one, the one the whole Bible is about, the one who we have been waiting and expecting, that one, that Lamb of God. Look at him. He has arrived. He has come. And he has come with a purpose. And that purpose is to save us. That purpose is to be our sacrifice. That purpose is to substitute in for us so that we can have a life with God. We can have a life with our creator. We can have a life as we're meant to have a life from the very get-go that eternally we can stand and bask in the presence of the almighty God as we're made to be. That is what we proclaim. Look, that's who we need to point to. That is who we declare. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So while John proclaimed the coming Savior, we, we must, we have to, we should, we should love to proclaim the risen Savior. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we praise your holy name. We thank you that we have the scripture, the gospel, the word of God that we can know you, we can respond to you, we can see how you have operated and saved us and follow what you have commanded us to do. Lord, I pray for all of us here that as we read the gospel of John and we see the message that he proclaims, as we see the message that John the Baptist proclaims, that we can be true to that and know that it's the same message we should proclaim. That we take a hard look at our life and say, how can I do this? How can I share this with people in my life? How can I make it known to people that I care about, people I run into? How can I serve you, Lord, as you called us to proclaim your message? Lord, I pray for all of us that we do it not out of guilt, we do it out of love because we know the power of that message. We do it out of encouragement and motivation that we want to make Jesus known more than anything else. Lord, we love you, we seek you.